Well, my apologies to Mari for my halitosis. My wife is the only other person that has to be that close to me when I talk. And she cries too. So, you know, maybe I should see the dentist or something. feel like there's a pattern there. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, Apparently it's summer. So congratulations for all of us that have decided to live in Oregon. Uh, Hopefully we can weather the rain together. And hopefully it'll get sunny soon. Um, We are continuing our study through Luke this morning. And throughout this study, as Brian and I have kind of talked together throughout the week, we keep saying to each other, man, it feels like we're kind of broken records. It feels like we're saying a lot of the same things over and over. And maybe that's because we just haven't thought of anything new to say, but also I think a lot of it is just to do with the fact that Luke reiterates a lot of the same themes and ideas over and over throughout his gospel. And if you're anything like me, that's actually helpful because I need to hear things from many different angles, many different times, in hopes that I can finally get it through my head. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking again at some sayings of Jesus. And again, I feel like I say this almost every week. These are some more difficult sayings from Jesus. He's a very kind, very loving Savior, and yet he pulls no punches. So let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the gospel reading from Luke 13. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, would you send your spirit to this place this morning to guide us, to warm our hearts as we um, look at the mystery of who you are, the mystery of the fact that you are so loving and so merciful and yet you are so angry and indignant at our sin. Would you give us clarity? Would you allow us to move beyond ourselves and allow you to be who you are and allow you to critique us as we are? I ask that as we hear your word this morning, that we would hear the voice of Jesus calling us back to himself. We ask this in his name. Amen. We're going to look at this passage this morning by looking at finger-pointing, real repentance, and God the gardener. Let's start with finger-pointing. A few days after the September 11th attacks, 
Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson surmised that groups that had been fighting for the secularization of America, particularly in relation to issues such as abortion and homosexuality, were partly to blame for the death and destruction that took place in New York City and Washington, D.C. In 2010, just days after Haiti sustained an enormous earthquake that left hundreds of thousands of people dead and close to a million people homeless, Pat Robertson insinuated that it was because years ago the Haitian people had made a pact with the devil. I could give you some other examples of theologians or pastors that are perhaps more close to home in your own theological circle. And though the examples that I just gave happen to be religious, it's not just religious people that engage in finger-pointing. Though, to be honest, us religious folk do seem to have a pretty good knack for it. No, we all do it. We do it in our political discussions. We do it at our jobs, in our families, with our spouses. We have a gift for emphasizing our successes and diminishing our failures, while at the same time emphasizing the failures of others and diminishing their successes. And this is what seems to be happening at the beginning of our passage this morning. Jesus has been continuing to give hard sayings to the crowds that are around him, and he's just finished chiding them for being able to tell what the weather is going to do. He says, you can look at the sky in, at night or in the morning, and you can tell if it's going to be a nice day or a rainy day coming up, and yet you are completely oblivious to what is going on within Jesus, within me, within the kingdom that I am bringing to Israel. He tells them that he has come to bring fire to the earth, to bring division rather than peace. He says that on account of him, even families, the cornerstone bedrock of ancient civilization will be ripped apart and divided because of his message. And just as we saw last week in the parable of the rich fool, what Jesus and Luke are trying to communicate is that the kingdom of God is coming on in force. And all the old systems of the world are being unmasked. So everything we used to think was important must now be reevaluated in light of the fact that God's kingdom has broken in to this world. So in the midst of all of these difficult sayings, someone runs up into the crowd with a copy of World News Daily, and he says, did you hear? Did you hear about those Galileans that got massacred? I wonder what they did to tick Pilate off. Sure. How about those people in Jerusalem that got crushed to death by that tower? What do you think God was so angry with them about? They must have done something to make him mad. That's what you think, isn't it, says Jesus. I mean, especially with the tower, because that's an act of God. They must have been worse sinners, worse offenders, or more literally, as Jesus puts it, they must have been debtors above all. Is that what you think? And his answer is emphatically, no, that is not the way things are working. But why do we all think this way? Why is this something that has carried over from ancient civilization till now? Why are we so intent on pointing the finger at other people and explaining why God is mad at them rather than us? Well, for one thing, I think it's comforting. If we can determine the types of people or the types of actions that make God angry, then all we have to do is avoid being that kind of person or avoid doing those sorts of things and we'll be fine. 
Friends, we are self-justification machines. We think that if we can convince ourselves that other people do worse things than us, that we're somehow exonerated. And this, I think, is the great irony of finger-pointing, especially religious finger-pointing that Jesus unmasks within each of us. It is in this very act of pointing fingers at others to feel better about ourselves that is the core of sin. Because when we point the finger at other people as if they are the ones that deserve judgment, they are the ones that have done wrong enough to get smacked, we are setting ourselves up as God, as the arbiter, as the judge, jury, and executioner. Finger pointing is comforting because it leaves us in the driver's seat. It keeps us from having to wrestle with the brokenness of this world. And it's also a deflection of our own guilt, our own culpability. Finger pointing is the way out. It's a way for us to avoid real repentance. Jesus insists to the people in the crowd that their finger pointing is a distraction from the concrete, time-sensitive, overbearing need of the moment. You must repent. Unless you repent, you will perish just like all the people you're pointing fingers at. Do you see how our finger pointing displays our own unrepentance? So often, we think of unrepentant people as those people who willfully continue to commit the same sin over and over and over again, refusing to change, and they have no remorse. And that's true as far as it goes. But unrepentance of religious finger pointing is so much deeper because our finger pointing reveals that we have failed to understand our own sinfulness. It reveals our own constant need to play God. Friends, unrepentance has less to do with perpetual sins and more to do with sin, capital S, a state of being in which we adamantly refuse to acknowledge our need for God. We're going to circle back to that idea in a moment, but first I think we need to ask ourselves, what is real repentance? I mean, if we're going to take the words of Jesus seriously here, it seems that repentance is the only way out of our predicament. Jesus tells us twice in a very short conversation, you must repent or you will perish. This is the only way to avoid the second death that Jesus talked about just a chapter prior to the one we read this morning. Before Martin Luther had his big moments of awakening that would go on to spark what we now call the Protestant Reformation, he was consumed with guilt. So he would study Scripture, and as he began to get this picture of God's righteousness and the judgment that was hanging over his head, he was overcome with debilitating fear and dread. And there are many stories about Luther's uh, perspective and personality during this time. And I think it's safe to say that many of them have crossed over sort of into urban legend, but they're still instructive and there's still sort of a kernel of truth at the root of them. It's, the story goes that as, as Luther became obsessed with rooting out sin in his life, he entered into sort of the Roman Catholic uh, ideas of how to do that at the time, self-flagellation, all sorts of uh, denying himself different things. And he would go to confession regularly. He once spent six hours in one chunk confessing sin. 
There was one occasion where after a, a particularly helpful time of confession where he felt like he finally kind of broke through his sinful patterns, he left and turned around and came right back in and said, oh, I've got to confess. I think I'm feeling prideful over my confession. I mean, he, he just could not get it over it. He was so overcome with his guilt. And so Staupitz, Luther's confessor, after many such sessions, was at his wit's end. And he says, and this is, this is a quote, okay? I did not write this. You must get a hold of yourself, Martin. Every time you fart, you want to make confession of your sins. Quit coming to me with these puppy confessions, Luther. Go kill your father or something. Then we'll have a sin to talk about. Someday I want to be old and just say stuff. I think, I feel like that's going to be awesome. So years, years later, after Martin Luther has left the Roman church and discovered the deep doctrines of grace, he writes to his old confessor and he thanks him for planting seeds within him about what true repentance is because his confessor taught him that true repentance starts with a love for righteousness and above all, a love for God. It's altogether too easy for churchy folks like many of us are to turn repentance into the new action step, the new thing that we must do in order to get God to like us. But if that's the case, if repentance is the new thing that we have to do in order for God to like us, then we better make sure that we do it good enough. We better repent real enough or truly enough or deeply enough or bad things might happen. We might not actually earn his favor. What a sad twisting of repentance. Because real repentance, real repentance was, was pictured for us in what we just did with Mari. She had absolutely no say in what happened here this morning. She was overpowered by something outside of her. Real repentance is rooted in the unshakable fact that there is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. And that's the point. Repentance isn't, uh, is a turning away, but not just from lust and anger and gluttony and all the rest, but it's a turning away from our own self-deification. It's turning away from our perceived autonomy and turning to God and saying, I cannot do this anymore. I can't outrun you, outsmart you, or outmaneuver you. You, the very one that I have rebelled against and made my enemy, are my only hope. Christian repentance is turning away from your attempts at life on your own terms and turning towards God, walking through death, the death of Jesus, into new life. But this is only done when you start to conceive of God as a patient gardener. The story that Jesus tells on the heels of his conversation about repentance is a parable. And it's a parable about the nation of Israel and if we had more time, we could kind of piece together what Luke does throughout his gospel and even into Acts as he tells these stories that are designed to help Israel see that Jesus is reiterating all the things that they've done in their history, only he's doing them in a way that is now honoring to God. He is the new Israel. He is taking on their corporate identity. And, and corporate Israel has some repenting to do. They need to understand that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he tells these stories, these parables. So he tells this parable about Israel, who is the fig tree, who for three years now 
has been under the ministry of Jesus, their Messiah. They've been hearing his message over and over, and they have failed to produce the fruit of repentance. So according to this parable, judgment is coming. Cut it down, says the landowner. It's been suggested then that if Israel is the fig tree, then God the Father is the landowner and God the Son is the gardener. And if that's accurate, then the way that Jesus tells this story is going to require us to do a a rather uncomfortable head dive into a tension within Christian theology. Is God the Father the kind of being that says things like, cut it down, time's up, I've had enough? And is God the Son this sort of patient muse that talks the Father back off the angry ledge eventually by taking the brunt of the Father's anger upon himself? I mean, is is that what Jesus is trying to get us to see in this parable? This has been a question that has plagued Christian theologians for centuries. One of the earliest Christian heresies was held by a guy who, who saw such disparity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, between what he called God the Father and God the Son, that he basically did away with the entire Old Testament and said, I only want this New Testament God, because he's the one who's nice. He's the one who's loving. This other one seems kind of capricious and angry. The new atheist movement has has kind of landed on the exact same question. God kills his own son? How is that good? How is that loving? It seems uh, to to lend this this idea uh, that has come, come to be known as divine child abuse. Have you guys heard that term? This is a term that theologians have been using for a few years now, divine child abuse, that God the Father's anger is so uncontrollable that he had to take it out on someone. And so he takes it out on his own son. And so while it's good news for us, it's disturbingly awful for God's son. This is the kind of questions that that, uh, theologians and atheists have been sort of wrestling with and positing for centuries. Now, just to manage our expectations I am not actually going to solve this tension in the next five minutes. But there are a couple things I think that we can do to set up the conversation and that you can perhaps continue a conversation in your community groups thinking about these ideas. But the first thing that we have to realize is that you have what's called an atonement theory. Whether you realize it or not, whether you're a Christian or not or a part of the church or not, if you have any conception about what Jesus, the cross, and the gospel are about, then you are operating on an ocean's worth of ideas and assumptions that rarely, if ever, peak above the surface. And that's not just true with atonement theology or Christian theology in general. That's true with just about every aspect of our lives. Most of the things that we actually think or verbalize are based on a whole onslaught of presuppositions that we've never even considered. Your gender, your family status, your nationality, an experience you might have had on the playground in first grade, something your parents said to you when you were four. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And the things that you think and the decisions that you make and the assumptions you have are based on this complex web that you often don't even realize is there in the first place. They are unchecked assumptions, which means that it's altogether possible, and in fact, it is impossible for us not to come to Christian theology or a parable like this without assumptions. We might 
come to this parable assuming that we understand what real love is. We might assume that we understand how the moral fabric of the universe fits together. If you've been in, a ch- in church for a while, then you may assume that you understand correctly how the Trinity works, how sin and sacrifice intersect. And all I'm saying is, you might be wrong. Your assumptions might be driving you in a direction that God and his word are trying to steer you off of, which is why it's important, utterly important. If you consider yourself a part of the community of God's church, you must wrestle with his word in that community. You have to allow scripture and communal engagement to shape you and reshape you. It doesn't happen on your own, and it doesn't happen without the authority of God's Word. It happens in community with God's Word at the center. So for those of you that have struggled with others, or perhaps even your own questions about the idea that that dad God is angry, and he takes it out on son God, and son God gets hurt as a result, I would challenge you to consider just quickly that this is actually flowing out of a caricatured idea of orthodox Trinitarian thought. Now, I, we could go down on a rabbit trail and never return here, but suffice it to say, the church has struggled to maintain a tension with Trinitarian theology. It is a mystery that we can't fully understand, but to describe Father and Son and Spirit as in any way pitted against each other is a departure from that tension. It's a departure from Orthodox Christianity. Jesus, or scripture, rather, tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the divine nature. As Jesus is, so is God. But really, all of us, if if we're honest, we have to struggle with Scripture's portrayal of who God is. We have to struggle with God's own intersect with our lives because we have to reckon with the fact that there are times when he seems angry. There are times that his word tells us he's angry. There are times it seems that he fails completely our conception of goodness and care. Even if the bad things that are happening in the world aren't happening as direct punishment on sin, God still allows them to happen. How does this work? We have to wrestle with these questions. And again, we're not going to solve this lifelong question that has been going on since the beginning of time in five minutes. But there's a couple things I'd like for you to consider. One is that the world is deeply and horrifically broken. As the people come to Jesus and they tell him, did you hear about how Pilate mingled the blood of these people with their sacrifices? Intrinsic in this, in this comment, in this question, is that these people were doing what they were supposed to do. They were in God's temple for crying out loud. How could they not have been protected? And rather than engage on how it could have been avoided or if God's mad or not, Jesus simply tells them to repent. This does not mean that when something horrible happens to someone else, you just go and say, well, we all need to repent. No, that's, that's not how Jesus even reacts most of the time. We have to really sit with the uncomfortableness that the world is deeply, deeply broken. But beyond that, we also have to realize that God is more complex than we could ever possibly understand Because if you have a God who never stretches you, who never pushes you or disagrees with you, if you have a God who categorizes things exactly like you do and finds things as important as you do from one moment to the next, guess what? 
you've got a God in your own image. Rather than allow yourself to be critiqued by God as he is, you have set yourself up as God. And really, we're like those people on American Idol. Anybody still watch that show? Is that show even still on the air? I don't know. You remember like in the midway part or like at the beginning of American Idol when they would do these vignettes of the people that just have really no business singing ever, not even in their shower, okay? And they come and they're dressed all crazy and they do this thing and they're just absolutely horrible. And the judges are like, dude, you, you really, you cannot sing, okay? Like you're a wonderful person. You probably have talents elsewhere, but singing is not it. And then a lot of these people will leave and what do they do? They come out and they talk to the camera and they're like, man, those judges are whacked. I mean, I am the talent. I am the new singer on the stage. Those judges don't get it. When we tell God, your world is terrible and you're not doing it right, we're like those singers who are saying, the judge is the one that's crazy. We've got it figured out. And really, we are just setting ourselves up as God again. And if we insist on being God, then God will give us over to that desire. He will eventually say, fine, your will be done. And that is the most frightening judgment of all. But here is the terribly, terribly good news. That though God is so much greater than us, so much more complex than us, so much more powerful than us, and though we continually push him to the margins, while he is in a position to do whatever he wants in whatever way he wants to do it, he instead becomes one of us. He takes on our limitations and becomes a gardener. And this uh, translation smooths out what the, what the gardener is saying. But what the gardener says is, I will get manure and dung and put it around this tree to give it life. God becomes one of us and gets his hands dirty with the dung of sin and death that we might have life. Friends, if we insist on being the king of our own lives, then there is nothing more disturbing than the news that God's kingdom has broken into this world in Jesus. We will resist it and fight it to our own destruction. But if we are willing to lay aside our pretense, then it's the best news in the world. Robert Ferrar Capon reminds us this way. He says, Jesus does not come to see if we are good, he comes to disturb the caked conventions by which we pretend to be good. He does not come to see if we are sorry. He knows our repentance isn't worth the hot air we put into it. He comes only to forgive for free, for nothing, on no basis, because like the fig tree, we are too far gone to have a basis. No, we are saved gratis, by grace. We do nothing and we deserve nothing. It is all absolutely and without qualification one huge, hilarious gift. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we come to your table and we consider the judgment that should be upon us, the judgment that you took upon yourself, I ask that we would see your love and your mercy and your beauty afresh. May we be willing to accept the complexity of who you are. May we be changed by your spirit, we ask in your name. Amen.